The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Running from Grace, the Gospel According to Jonah. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. So hear the word of the Lord from Jonah, the end of chapter 1 through the first three verses of chapter 3. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from, the, from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, we are three weeks in this book of Jonah, and we're studying the book of Jonah, so please open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles spread out on the floor somewhere in your aisle. You can grab one, or you've got your iPhone or your knockoff iPhone that you can find an app on there that says version or Bible app, and you can find all of our stuff right there. Please do that. Follow along with me. Um, we, we try to the best of our ability to just preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. We think it's the best way, the most appropriate way, um, the way that we can rightly divide the word of God and, and give you a good diet of meat. So that's what we want to do today. We are three weeks into this. And this morning, I'm just gonna give you a little prequel here. This morning, we're gonna be talking about what I'm calling real prayer. And how real prayer, and when I say that, I want you to hear, there, when I say that is because there's real prayer and there's not real prayer. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But real prayer, this is what real prayer does. Real prayer connects us in an honest way to God and it energizes us by acquainting us to the, or connecting us to the most powerful life-changing reality in all the world, the grace of God, okay? But before we get there, we need to do some work. Now, listen, my wife just had her fourth baby. And if, you, if, you've, if you've had any children, you know, when your wife is pregnant, everything changes, okay? Her emotions change, her hormones change, her sleep patterns change, her body changes, And all of these changes inevitably lead to your relationship changing, okay? Now, pregnancy, I'll be honest, it can be a real test, right? It can be a real love test. 
right? It can be a real test on just the relationship a man has and the way a man loves his wife. See, this is what happens. Before the baby, husband and wife typically have a partnership. Now, they don't know it, right? The, the, the rules are generally unspoken. See, he, it's kind of like this. He pulls his weight, she pulls hers, right? One pays the bills, the other cleans the kitchen, right? One uh, picks up the kids from school, the other one takes them to soccer practice. We usually, in our, you know, equitable mindset, we try to balance things out pretty fairly, 50-50, right? She did that, I'll do this, right? You get this 50-50 thing going on. But when God gives the woman the great gift of carrying a baby, he oftentimes saps a good portion of her strength, right? Her feet hurt. She's hungry all the time. She's emotional. You never, not, you never quite know. <laughs> oh, I'm walking on pins and needles here. You never quite know what, she's, what mood she's going to be in when she gets home, right? So for the unprepared husband, all of this can come as quite a shock, right? This 50-50 equitable relationship is being challenged by pregnancy, and he was busy before, right? He was, we're all busy, right? Nobody, hey, how, how's life? Oh, it's real busy, real busy. We're crazy busy. It's everybody, right? You never meet anybody. How's life? I'm real bored, actually, right? You, everyone in our culture is busy. So he's busy before, but now, inevitably, some of the things that she used to do, he's got to pick up and make happen, right? He's got to take a little bit more onto his plate. But for the husband who loves his wife and desires to serve her like Christ served the church, he willingly does this and probably internally pats himself on the back for being a good husband. You know what? I'll, I'll get the dishes, right? Don't worry about it. I'll clean out the van. I got it. I got it. But then one day, she crosses the line. Right? You didn't know there was a line. There's a line. Dad, for me, this is how it usually goes. You've worked all day. You've come home. You've cleaned the dishes. You wiped down the kitchen. You did the homework with the kids. You've successfully maneuvered through the exhausting bedtime rhythms of jammies, snack, teeth brushing, another stack because you're starving, teeth brushing again, bedtime stories, prayers, nightlight, bathroom request. Another question that can't wait till morning. Another bathroom request. And finally, the giggles have softened to whispers. And you think, I've just about nailed this day. I have dominated Tuesday. <laughs> right? Dang, you're thinking, I am a good gospel-centered husband. My missional community should look at me now. My wife better be texting all my fight club friends right now. <laughs> Right? But you come downstairs and you pour yourself a nice adult beverage and you sink into your favorite place to sit. You deserve this. You've earned this. Now it's daddy time. Just me, my drink, and my favorite book, or of course, your favorite episodes on Netflix. And it's just in this moment that it happens, right? Your wife smiles. And looks at you and just when you know she's going to commend you for being a tireless, sacrificial, Jesus-like husband, she says, honey, will you run to Taco Bell for me? Or for my case, honey, will you rub my feet? And that like, we didn't have a prenup, but pretty much the prenup was I'll do anything for you but rub your feet. I don't like it, right? 
It's just, I'm sorry. I don't like it. And she says, honey, and she gives you the look. And you know, it's in this moment right here that true love flexes its muscles. Because, see, everything you did up until this moment, you were doing for you. See, you were feeling like a boss, right? You were feeling like a successful husband. You were like those deadbeat husbands in your fight club, right? You're a good husband, right? You weren't one of those deadbeat husbands who treat their wives like a beast of burden, right? So up until this moment, all of your good works were really deep down about you. You are doing them to feel good about yourself. And if anyone would dare call you a selfish husband, all you would have to do is tell them about this night. This night is proof you love your wife well, right? But now, see, this is the moment that draws the line in the sand. See, now in this moment, true love is required. Can you do something out of sheer love? Can you do something completely against your will? Right? Can you do something out of sheer love for your wife when you don't understand? Right? And here's to be honest, men, you don't think you have to do it. Now, look at you look at your wife and you go, "I know there's things in the fridge. You don't need Taco Bell." Right? I'm looking at your feet. I know I'm thinking, I had a hard day. I know you're growing a human and all, but I had a hard day too. You're thinking, you don't need your foot feet rubbed. It ain't going to help. It's, come on. Like you're thinking all these excuses in your head. Now, if you're smart, you don't verbalize that. You, you just quiet for a real long time. Trying to find some way out of this, right? Now, it's a funny story, but... In actuality, this, it just so happens that this is what, where Jonah has found himself. See, he's in a similar spot with God. See, God has asked Jonah to take his message to the Ninevites. And this is the one thing that Jonah does not want to do. Up until this point, Jonah's relationship with God has, all, has been all about Jonah and Jonah's people. His Hebrew people, it was ethnocentric. Everything that God had asked Jonah to do up until this point had served Jonah in some way. Jonah was preaching really a successful message to the Hebrew people. So every time Jonah obeyed God, it was kind of like a pat on his own back, right? But just when Jonah gets comfortable... In the current relationship with God, right? Okay, God, you give me good news and I'll give the, my people good news. This works out well. Just when Jonah gets comfortable in the current relationship and what he thinks is this 50-50 equitable partnership with God, God crosses the line. How dare you, God? God has the audacity to ask Jonah to do the one thing that he will not do. Go preach grace to your enemies. Go preach grace to the biggest threat to your peace and your livelihood. Go preach the gospel to those dirty, rotten sinners in Nineveh. And what we've learned over the past two weeks is that Jonah's love for God, look at this, Jonah's love for God couldn't handle that. I love you, God, but I don't love you that much. 
See, Jonah loved his ethnicity and his feeling of superiority over the Ninevites. He loved that actually more than he loved God himself. So when God said, do the one thing that you don't want to do, he said, no, God, I won't do it. And he turned and ran in the opposite direction. So this is an interesting book, isn't it? We've got the preacher. We've got the prophet. We've got the good Right? The goody two-shoes, the moral, upright, conservative, you know, buttoned up and laced tight. We have this guy running from God. He runs from grace. But Jonah obviously must have forgotten theology 101, right? How do you run from the face of a God who's omnipresent? Problem. So Jonah runs from God, but in actuality, because God is great and sovereign, Jonah runs right into God. You can't outrun omnipresence, right? You can't run outrun his presence. It's everywhere. He's everywhere all at the same time. So what happens? God pursues Jonah with a giant storm and a great fish. And what we see is that God doesn't pursue Jonah. This is interesting. Now, many of us grew up with this idea of God, yet God's going to get you. You run from him, he's going to get you. And when he finds you, he's going to beat you down, right? I kind of had this idea of God when I grew up, scared of him. He's like just waiting to zap me, waiting to break my leg or something, right? But what we see in Jonah is God, when, when, when his person runs, when his prophet runs, when his people rebel, God comes after them. God pursues them, but he doesn't do it to punish him. He's not chasing Jonah down to ruin his life. God is trying to free Jonah from the most constricting thing in all the world, religion. God is trying to heal Jonah from his own self-righteousness and his feelings of superiority over people who aren't like him. God is trying to take Jonah and take his relationship with Jonah to the next level. He's chasing him down to teach him the one lesson that must be learned and relearned. It must be experienced and re-experienced. And the lesson is that grace is what our hearts are longing for, and grace can only be found in weakness, in humility. That's the only place you could find grace. In fact, this text shows us most of the time, grace is found in the dark. So, God tells this preacher to preach grace to the Ninevites before he can do that. Listen, God says, Jonah, go preach grace. But God knows before Jonah can preach grace, Jonah has got to get grace, right? He's got to receive grace. He's got to be changed by grace and shaped by grace. He needs to feel down deep in his bones that God loves sinners. What? Until he can do that, he can't preach grace to the Ninevites. So to make that happen, God does what he usually does, right? He sends a giant fish to swallow Jonah. Huh? Isn't that normal, right? I, don't, I, you know, I hear a lot of testimonies growing up, but I've never heard this testimony. So look at verse one, or chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed, the Lord appointed, that means God directed. God spoke to a fish and told this fish to swallow his boy Jonah. Jonah had just been thrown over, over the side of the boat, right? A great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, first, can this really happen? 
Is this just a myth, a fairy tale, something in the Bible that's just ridiculous? Now, if you already believe in God and you believe the God of the Bible, you know all things are possible, right? God can do whatever God wants to do. But if you're in here and you are not a believer, and this is a very hard story to believe, right? A fish swallows a man. He's in the belly of the fish for three days, and then all of a sudden he's spit back up. Well, it's cool. If you have possibly uh, an Encyclopedia Britannica on your shelf, or you can Google it if you don't have that anymore. We used to have those. You, will, you could look up in the Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica and you could see examples of this exact very thing happening. It's very interesting. Now, in that book, you'd find that an average sperm whale has a mouth that's 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. Now, that's bigger than many of our bedrooms, right? <clears throat> you would also see, this is interesting, that in 1891, a ship called Star of the East spotted a large sperm whale by the Falkland Islands, and then they dispatched two boats to go and harpoon this whale. And in the effort, one of these boats got capsized, one of the sailors drowned, and another guy disappeared. They had no idea what happened to him. And that man was James Bartley. James Bartley disappeared and could not be found. Now, the remaining sailors, they harpooned the whale and they dragged it aboard the main vessel and they removed the blubber from the whale and did all that stuff. And then the next day, they cut open the belly of the the whale and they opened it and out came James Bartley. And James Bartley was unconscious but alive. And they used seawater and they revived him and he went back to work in a couple of days. All right. He was in the belly of a whale overnight. Right. Now, was that comfortable? I doubt it. Right. He wasn't throwing a party in there. Right. It was very difficult. But even in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, yes, absolutely. It is possible for a human being to be swallowed by a whale or a large fish. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because I don't want us to miss the main point that the book of Jonah is not about a whale, or a fish. In fact, in these four chapters that tell the whole story, only three verses even mention the whale. Verse 17, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 10. What this story is actually about is what's going on inside of Jonah, a religious man. See, Jonah's relationship with God has been based on something other than grace. And now his entire life has blown up. He's in a term that Christians like to use. Jonah is backslidden. He's mad at God and running from him, but God is no chump, right? God is no pushover. God's will is always effective. That's what it means to be sovereign, that we can fight against it. We can push back against it. We can run from it and even resist it in some ways, but God's grace always overcomes our resistance. That God knows how to kind of back us into a corner and to get us, each and every one of us, in a situation and circumstances that cause us to reevaluate our lives. To cause us to re-experience His grace. For Jonah, it's here. In the belly of a hot, smelly fish. Scientists say it would be about 108 degrees in there. Tight, right? Cramped quarters, hot, uh, 
you know, the digestive fluids would be burning him. It wouldn't be killing him, but it would be bothering his skin. He, there's, you know, stomach acid that's messing with him. He, it's dark, pitch black. There's water sloshing around. There's, and it's hot, and he's overwhelmed, and he's in this cramped position. God knows how to get people where they'll listen to him. <laughs> and it's here, in this dark spot, that Jonah, once again, finds grace. So let's think about this. God has got him here. Jonah doesn't, Jonah's religious. He doesn't get grace. And God's got him in this tight spot, this hot spot. What's the point? God wants him to get grace. So how's God going to do it? How's God going to deliver grace in the dark? How's he going to be wake up to grace in the dark? We're going to see. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now, I'm gonna, there's, this is what I'm going to talk about today. There's two ways to pray. There's a religious way of praying, and then there's this way that Jonah's about to pray. But it's hard to see the difference in our daily lives. Now, Jonah has been a religious person, right? He's been obeying God and following the rules. And now all of a sudden, Jonah wakes up in his own personal hell. That's what this is. Now, have you ever experienced this? This is what I'm going to... Have you ever woken up one day and you didn't know? You've been obeying the rules, you've been following, you've been going along, life as normal. And one day you wake up and you wonder, how did I get here? See, that's, what, that's what's going on with Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And finally he says, all right, I'm going to pray to God. <laughs> right? He's having this come to himself moment. That, have you ever had that moment? Have you ever woken up maybe from a drunken night out in someone else's bed? Have you ever woken up one day and all of a sudden your business now is on the edge of bankruptcy or your marriage is on the edge of divorce? That You don't even know how you got here. How did we get here? How did I end up in the belly of a whale? How did I end up in this dark, hot, personal hell? How did I end up here? Right? All of a sudden you wake up and you're a drug addict or you're an alcoholic. It just started out here. And how did I end up here? How have I ended up here? I wasn't raised like this. I know better. I'm better than this. How did I get so off track? What has happened to me? I just imagine buttoned up preacher man waking up in the belly of a whale. What? How did I end up here? See, seeing the difference between religion, religion is this, God, I do this for you. And now you bless me and give me a good life. God, I do this for you. You do this for me. Religion is a 50, 50. You either stop doing these things. So God will love you. Or you go to church and you pray and, and you read your Bible and you're, you're good to your neighbor. And then God will bless you and God will multiply you. And God will keep, you know, disease from happening to your body or whatever. Religion is God, you do this and I'll do this. And it's pretty easy to see the difference between that and Christianity on paper. That Christianity has nothing to do with what you do. Christianity has been done for you. Jesus Christ 
died your death that you deserve for your rebellion against him, your sin, my sin. Jesus Christ took your place and upon the cross took all your sin, all the punishment, all the wrath on himself and died in your place so that you can get grace, so that you can get the steadfast love of the Lord, so that you can get everything that he deserves. See, religion is 50-50. You do your part, God does his part. Christianity is God does it all. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's easy to see on paper the difference. But what's hard to see is the difference that those two things make in our life and the ways that we live. See, many times we can believe that we're walking Christianly, we're walking in grace, when in reality, in fact, we've wandered back into religion. And it's thankfully at this time that God sends storms into our life. He, he takes the lights out, right? He makes things go dark so that we're forced to address our self-righteousness. So we're forced to look and search and find grace in the dark. And that's exactly what's going on with Jonah. So many of you in this room, you might be in that spot. You might be in a dark spot. You might be in a really difficult season in your life. You might be in the belly of a whale, so to speak. And things feel like your own personal hell. And if you are, I want you to say there's grace there. That God's presence is there. And, and today I want us to find that grace. And some of us, you're not. But you know what? You're going to be. You're going to be because you're buttoned up and you feel good about yourself. And you're like Jonah preaching to the Israelites. Man, God is so good to us. We are on the inside. Look at the world out there. They are going to hell in a handbasket. I'm so glad we're the good guys. And all that, you know what? A few months, a few years, you'll be in the belly of a whale. See, suffering comes for us all. It's either in your past, it's in your present, or it's in your future. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to be in a dark spot where nothing will help us but the grace of God. That's where we find Jesus. That's where our hearts are formed and shaped. And you get an identity, identity that can't be moved. See, I love it. God sends this to Jonah. See, in the hand of God, suffering can have a redemptive purpose in our life. Can have. I'm not saying suffering is good. I'm not glorifying suffering. I'm not saying, I'm saying suffering can have a redemptive good. I've met people that have had cancer and they've literally, you've probably heard this, right? Cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. Right? Suffering can have a redemptive good in the hand of God. Suffering can use by God as a smelling salt to wake us up because there's nothing like suffering, listen, to make us feel helpless. Now, why would I want to feel helpless? Helplessness, according to Richard Foster, listen, helplessness is the real secret and the impelling power of prayer. Helplessness is the real secret and the impelling power of prayer. Oh, Hallisby in his famous book on prayer says this, prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only those are true, who are truly helpless can pray, right? Now, most Americans, most of the time, we don't feel helpless. There's always a way out right? You're in bankruptcy. You talk to the right lawyer. There's always tricks, right? There's always ways to figure, or not always, most of the way, there's ways to figure out. There's, you could hit this guy up for money, or you could figure this out, or you could file this, or you could file that. We don't really feel helpless most of the time. But let me tell you, Jonah in the, can you imagine this, right? 
Jonah in the belly of a whale. Now, only Jack Bauer could find his way out of this situation, probably, right? He's in the belly of a whale. There's no hope. He's going, imagine his ears are popping. He's going deeper and deeper. We're about to see that in a second. There's no way out. He feels absolutely helpless. It's dark. It's hot. It's smelly. There's no way out. He feels helpless. See, God uses storms. He uses darkness. He uses relational difficulties to wake us up to the reality that we can't do life on our own. We are not autonomous We are dependent creatures. We cannot manufacture our own lives the way that we want them to go. We can't create our own happiness. No matter what marketers or no matter what our economy tells us, you can't buy something that's going to make you happy. You can't go somewhere that's going to make you happy. You can't eat something that's ultimately going to make you happy. Happiness is always out there and never achieved. Only God can give us that happiness. Only his grace can satisfy that longing that we've got. So Jonah shows us right here. How do you tap into that? If if God has happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, how do you tap into that? If it's all through grace, how do you tap into that? How do you, let's say it like this. How do you go to the well and draw up some water to drink, right? Jesus used that illustration himself. Anyone who drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. How do you go to that well and drink? Jonah shows us right here. You find grace to satisfy you through real prayer. Now, what is real prayer? And what can we learn about it from Jonah? So, Obviously, when I say real prayer, I'm, in, I'm inferring and insinuating that there is something that's not real out there. There's some kind of fake prayer, phony prayer. We, in fact, we've already seen an example of that with the sailors. Do you remember the sailors? Everything goes bad. They cry out to their gods. They want everybody to pray to whatever god they serve, and nothing happens, right? That's fake prayer. That's phony prayer. That's religious prayer. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and he says, when he looks at the Pharisees, and one Pharisee is praying to God, and this is how he prays. God, thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. I thank you that I'm, I'm moral, and he's immoral. I thank you that I give my money and give my tithes to the church, and that guy does nothing good with his money. God, I mean, do you see this religious response? Thank you that I'm awesome. God, thank you that I'm awesome and I'm not like that guy. Now, I think we do that. Hey, right? Tuesday is the time we all, well, most of us go out and vote, right? I think we we do that with the person on the opposite side of the aisle, whether you're Republican or Democrat or whatever. Thank God I'm not like that guy. Isn't that pretty much what all the ads on TV are? Thank God I'm not like that guy. Thank God I'm not like that woman. See, that's religion. People are praying, but it's not a real prayer. It's, it's a fake prayer. It's a false prayer. Jesus said, don't pray like that. When the disciples said, well, how do we pray? Jesus one time said, brought the little kids in. He said, this is how you need to respond to me. This is how you need to pray like these little kids. Now, listen to this. For the one, for fake prayer, fake and phony prayer is a religious kind of performance. It's going through the motions. I got a promotion coming up. I better go get the big guy's blessing. 
hey, man, you know what? If I got him on my back, if I got Jesus on my side, that, that's good going into a job interview, right? So I'm going to go get Jesus' blessing on this thing. Hey, Jesus, help me out. And it's this religious kind of performance, kind of dancing for your dinner type of thing. Get him on your side. But what we see in Matthew 18, that we're supposed to pray like children. If you've ever been around children, when children pray, children pray hilariously, for one, right? They, I, I can't get into my kids' prayer right now, but it's like the funniest time of my night when my kids are praying. And, and who knows what they're going to pray, right? What does that mean? Why? It's honest. It's from the heart. It's what they feel. They might pray that someone dies that week. They might pray that. God, she took my crayon at school. Would you kill her tonight? They might pray that, right? That, that, that's a legitimate prayer from a child. Now, listen, I think that's more acceptable to God than when I feel hatred for that child. I feel hatred for another person to go, God, would you please change her heart so she'll never do things like that to me again, right? I feel one way is phony, one way is a performance. I, I think of a way I should be feeling about it. I should be praying, so I'm trying to pray correctly. And a child just splurts it out, right? Just blurts it out and just prays what's on their heart. That's kind of what you're going to see from Jonah here. <clears throat> Listen to this quote from Paul Miller. Paul Miller wrote a book, A Praying Life. It's great. He says this, Private personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of religion of legalism. In order to pray like a child, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. That's that's what I'm trying to do today through Jonah. I want us to unlearn the non-real praying. Listen, let me tell you this. If your voice changes when you start praying, that's a fake prayer. If you're talking like this and all of a sudden, God, I thank you for listening to these thou voice, right? What is that? Right? Or you get real, oh, oh, gee, what? That's a performance. You're stirring something up. That's fake. That's phony. What do we see from Jonah here? Look at this. Jonah shows us how to pray for real. And his prayer has at least four key parts to it, each one crucial to experiencing the grace of God when you're in a dark place. So I want you to do this. I don't do points very often, but I'm going to do it. Number one, we're going to see Jonah assess where he is. Okay. And this is not, this is not a religious. This is, this is an honest assessment. What, what theologians have called, called this in the past is meditation, not mystic, not Eastern meditation. This is taking scripture. Look at taking scripture that you have memorized or that you're reading and pressing it down into your heart thinking about it, stirring it over, wrestling with it. And then look, while you do that, what comes out of your mouth, that's prayer. Okay. So Jonah is going to take the scripture that he's got in his head. He's going to wrestle with it. He's going to digest it. And then out comes prayer. Now, what do I mean by that? Almost all Jonah's prayers that we're about to see here, most of them aren't original. See, we think, oh, honest prayer means I got to be real with God. And I just got to come up with my own words. Jonah, almost all of Jonah's prayers here are just going to be repetition from the Psalms. See, he's been taught the Psalms as a child. He's been singing the Psalms over and over. So the Psalms have shaped his prayer life. The Psalms, did you know that's what the Psalms are? The Psalms are prayers. They're songs. That's what our prayers should look like. And the Psalms are honest. 
So Jonah gets packed into the belly of a whale. He's on his own little personal hell. And the Psalms that he's digested, the Psalms that he's memorized, the songs that he's got in his heart begin to shape and help him assess his situation where he's at right now. Look what he says. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. God, it's not going well for me. I am in hell. Well, why would I say he's in hell? Keep reading. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Sheol is the place of the dead. It represents hell. He's saying, I'm in hell right now. I'm in my own personal hell. This is honesty. But he says this, look, and you heard my voice. Look at this. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, if you remember anything, chapter 1 was all about man. Chapter 1 was from man's perspective. Who threw Jonah in the sea? The sailors, right? But chapters 2, we see from the sovereign God's perspective. Chapter 2, Jonah says, I know those men threw me in the sea, but in actuality, you threw me in the sea, God. You've put me here. I'm in this dark spot because you are trying to do something. Then he said, verse 4, I'm driven away from your sight. Now, isn't that interesting? What was Jonah trying to do in verse 1? Wasn't he trying to get away from the side of the Lord. He was running from the face of God. And now Jonah's like, oh crap, I got what I wanted. And I'm, I'm in a submarine, right? I'm going down, 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 down. So Jonah, it's like he wakes up. He's had the smelling salt of suffering, open his eyes. And he's in this dark spot and all of hell is surrounding him and it's crushing him. And he feels on the brink of death. His breath is about to be extinguished. His time on earth is about to be over. And he's crying out to God. And he's not, he's so clearly assessing his situation. He's so clearly assessing. God has me here. I'm in a deep, dark place because I've been running from God. Look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's just talking about, I am in absolute hell without your grace and without your mercy. Now, have you ever felt like that? See, I love that we get that the God of the Bible like has language like this. God, I don't know what's going on. God, I need to assess my life. I need to look and see what are you doing? Have I been running from you? All hell is breaking loose in my life, in my house, in my family, in my church, in my missional community. The Bible gives us language for that. Okay? So number one, we see honest prayer, real prayer. We, through meditation, we assess where we are. Secondly, we confess what got you there. And then we say it around here like this. You got to own your sin. Whoa. What does that mean? Look at verse 8. This is what Jonah says in this intense situation. He says this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Forsake their hope of steadfast love. Other versions say they reject the grace of God. 
See, this is where Jonah, he received the word of the Lord. Go tell those bad guys to repent that I'm going to give them grace. And Jonah said, no, I'm a good guy. They're a bad guy. This is the moment where the light bulb comes on for Jonah. And he says, oh, I'm a bad guy. I've been worshiping something else. I'm just like the Ninevites. I'm just like the sailors. All my religious do-gooding and moral effort has got me nowhere. Now, this is why this is so important. This is the moment in real prayer where you realize all the stuff that's going on outside of you, it's not just victimizing you. You are not an innocent victim. If you can see things from God's perspective, you are not an innocent victim. This is where people's prayer oftentimes goes from real to fake. See, if you skip this part, suffering will only make you bitter. You'll think of yourself as a victim. You'll blame others. I can't believe God let me get thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish. I can't believe I'm bankrupt. I can't believe my wife is mad at me. I can't believe my husband left me. I can't believe my business isn't going well. I can't believe my kids aren't obeying me. I can't believe it. God, you're not good. God, you did this. See, for prayer to be real, we must see ourselves not only as sufferers, but also as sinners. And what I mean by that is we must confess not just our sinful actions. We must confess our sinful heart motivations. Soren Kierkegaard called this the sin beneath the sin. It's the why behind what you did. Jonah says, he didn't say, oh, my bad, I ran from you. My bad. I'll turn around. He says, those who... Those who profess vain idols, right? Those who pay regard to vain idols. He says, I was paying regard to a vain idol. I was worshiping another God. That's why I sinned. That's why I ran from you. Jonah says, he was living his life with something other than God at the center. For Jonah, that was his religious pride and his ethnicity as God's chosen people. And Jonah says, if you're worshiping other gods, if your life is built on the foundation of something other than God, your sins, your running, that's just the fruit. That's just the fruit. You've got to confess the root of the problem, right? If you've got bad apples coming on your tree, you can't just pull the fruit off and go to Walmart and buy new apples and put it on. Right? You've got to get to the root of the problem. And idolatry is the root of the issue. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. See, that means you can't just go after the fruit. So if you're if you say you're sorry, you can't just say you're sorry for yelling at your wife. You can't just say you're sorry for not teaching your kids the scriptures. You can't say you're sorry for cheating on your taxes. For it to be true prayer, listen, you have got to confess the heart idolatry underneath the behavior. You've got to see the reason you're cheating on your taxes is because you're an idolater. You've been worshiping money. That's why you cheat on your taxes. That's why you rob God. 
by not giving him your tithes and offerings. If you don't go to this next step, the sin beneath the sin, you aren't actually praying. You're just being religious. What do you mean? See, religious people, they do bad things and then they feel bad about them and then they make resolutions to never do them again. Religious people do that. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have been there. All right, I'll never do that again. All right, God, I'll never do that again. Please forgive me. I'll never do that. Religious people, phony prayers, fake prayers, not real prayers. See, they feel guilty or ashamed and they make resolutions to do better and try harder. That's religion. That's a man-centered way to get God on your side. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. Christians, assess where they are in light of God's word. And then they confess their sins beneath their sins. I did this and this is why. In that moment, I was worshiping something other than God. The approval of man meant more to me in that moment than God's approval of me. Money meant more to me than God's approval of me. Jonah, a religious man, that's what he says right here. Something meant more to me than God. That's why I ran. And because I ran, because of that worship of a false God, I forsake, I forsook, right? I think that's how you say it. The hope of steadfast love. The very thing that's going to satisfy me, I walked away from. Others' translations said that when we do that, when we worship something other than God, we forfeit the grace of God. Now, what does it mean? Anytime you worship another God, there's no other God, and we use God with big G and every other God with little g, right? But no other God gives grace. If you worship money and you fail it, it will be gone. It will crush you. It will empty you. It will take everything from you and leave you penniless. It won't, be pers- it won't be personal, right? Just business, right? It's not personal, just business. If you worship God and you f- or you worship money and money is your God and you fail, it will crush you. There's no grace. If you worship your children, there's no grace with your children. If you fail and you will, you are already doing it, mom and dad. You're already failing. You're already making mistakes. If you worship them, if you put them at the center of everything, one day they're going to turn around on you and they're going to point you and they're going to say, you hate me or I hate you. And it's going to crush you. It's going to devastate you. There's no grace. But Jonah shows us that God is different. This is unbelievable. When you fail God, when you run from God, he doesn't leave us. When we fail God, he never leaves us. He actually comes after us. He actually orchestrates the whole universe to get us connected back to the grace of God through real prayer. This is how persistent and how powerful and how sovereign and how gracious God is. And nothing else that we serve, nothing else that we try to put our time and our attention and our money in will give us grace like this. See, any time, Something becomes more important to you than your relationship with God. It becomes an idol. I know many of us think idols are these little statues that people in third world countries use, but no. 
An idol is anything in your life that means more to you than God. And most of the time, idols are good things. Good things that we love too much and become bad things in our life. And Jonah says, when we worship other gods, think about this. We forfeit the grace of God. Where God gives us love by grace, idols demand sacrifice. They demand more and more and more. It's like a drug addiction and the law of diminishing returns. It takes more and more money and more and more drugs to get that high. And, you, and, and the return on the investment just keeps going down, but it's causing, you have to, it costs more and more and more. That's what all worship of an idol does. So first, assess where you are. I'm here. I'm in, I'm in hell I'm in a very bad spot. Or for some of us, my heart is cold to God. My heart is hard. I feel religious. I don't feel connected to other people. I want to just go home and hide. Assess where you are. Number two, confess what got you there. Why are you running from God? What's the sin beneath the sin? Right? I want people to look up to me. I don't want people to know I'm a sinner. Confess it. And then step three. And I think this, this is like, we, we, this, this is humbling, right? We should be feeling pretty low. We should be, feel pretty powerless at this moment to see that every one of us, no matter what t-shirt we wear or what bumper sticker we have or how many times we read our Bible, that all of us chase after other gods. So what do we do, to number, what do, we do next? In our prayer time, if it's going to be real, you remember the gospel. Look at verse, we could just go through this. This whole thing is littered with hope. It's littered with the gospel. Let's just go right back through uh, verse one. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and look, and he answered me. This is what prayer is. He's in the belly of a fish. He's in his own personal hell and he cries out to God and he hears God answer him. Okay. In the storm, In the darkness, in the hellish situation, he hears God respond to him in his heart. Okay, keep reading. Out of the belly of the shield, I cried, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Look, then I said, I'm driven from your sight. But look at this. Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. What's going on right here? The temple is the place where men met with God. Inside the temple, there was a table where sacrifices were made. The people would confess their sins to God. They would place their, the, their sacrifice on the altar. And then the priest would, would kill the animal and, and the blood would shed. And that punishment that they deserved for their rebellion, sinning against God, they deserved to die. But that lamb would take their place. And Jonah says, when he's in the belly of the whale and all hell is pressed against him and he sees that he's a sinner and you know what he knows? You know what he knows? This is what I deserve. I deserve for the whale to swallow and just kill me. That's what I deserve. I deserve to go to the bottom of the deep and to be surrounded by hell. I deserve to go to hell because I've rebelled and ran against God. That's what I deserve. But in this moment, he remembers the gospel. In the Old Testament, he remembers the sacrifice. He remembers the substitute placed on the altar in the temple. 
And his mind drifts back where he's feeling so low and so despondent and like such a guilty sinner. His mind goes to the temple where a substitute takes his place. And then we see in verse 6 that he goes, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. What's he doing? And the last thing he says in the whole chapter, what's he say? Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's saying, I'm a sinner. Deep down in my bones, I worship other gods. But salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation belongs to God. Someone has taken my place. I look to the temple. He's remembering his salvation. He's remembering the work that God's done to save him. And we know, right? 750 years after this, God sends Jesus Christ. And Jesus was the one who said, I'll give, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus was telling us and telling the disciples, I'm the true and better Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days. Right? Jonah felt the wrath of God. Jesus felt the true wrath of God that he didn't deserve. Jonah looked to the temple. We look to Jesus. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is where he was our sacrifice. He was our substitute. He is the one who takes the place. We deserve to drown. Jesus drowned in the wrath of God for us. It's in this moment that your prayer goes from religious to gospel-centered or from religious to real where you see, I deserve wrath. And God doesn't go, no, you're good today. Don't worry about it. He says, all the wrath that you deserve, I've already placed on Jesus. See, that's why we don't get punished anymore. There's only two places, right? That all our punishment that we deserve goes. Number one, it goes on Jesus. Or number two, if we don't confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if we don't embrace him by faith, then we get punished on the last day. Then that wrath that's been stored up comes to fall on us. But it's in this moment where Jonah's prayer gets gospel-centered. He gets the gospel. Jesus took my place. I ran. Jesus never ran. And lastly, what this does, a real prayer. So assess where we are. We confess the sin beneath the sin and our idolatry. Third, we remember the gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Fourth, we respond in worship. And this is what's so good. See, religious people, they can't worship because they feel like it's owed to them. God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. He walks out arrogant, walking with a swagger. But there's another guy in this story with Jesus who's beating his breast and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy gets forgiven. That guy gets justified. That guy gets right. And what's that guy going to do? That guy worships. We see Jonah right in the belly of a whale. I love this. Now, I don't know how he got his worship on in the belly of a whale, right? But this is what he says. Verse nine, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is worship. This is, you know, they, they, and during the Reformation, they said, soli deo gloria. 
the glory to God alone. Salvation belongs to God. I have nothing. I can't save myself. I'm swallowed up. There's nothing I can do to earn it. God is gracious. Now, what I love about this, religious people are control freaks. Okay? That's why we want a list. We want to control God. And Jonah is a control freak. He doesn't want to go where God tells him to go. But what we see here in this chapter, and this is a mark of true prayer. Don't, Jonah doesn't go to prayer. He doesn't go pray to tell God what to do. Right? How often do we pray? This is how, this is how we pray in a poor way. God, fix my kids. <laughs> Right? God, stop. Okay, what's really going on, God? My kids are really annoying me right now. So make them less annoying. Right? Now, we don't get that, ob- we don't say it that obviously, but we, we pretty much pray that way. When what God's trying to do is create patience in us. That's what God's trying to do. That the patience, cr- making us into a patient person is more important to him than making our kids not fight with each other in the moment. And what we see in this with, with, we see this mark in Jonah is he doesn't tell God what to do. He surrenders all control. I, I think that's a mark of true prayer. Coming to God and saying, God, you change me. God, you change what I'm thinking. You change my will. I'm not going to give you any ifs. I'm not gonna do, there's no deals here. I'm not bargaining with you. See, this is what real prayer is supposed to look like. It's a complete and total resignation of my will to God's. And Jonah, this is, I think this is what we want. Jonah experiences a change. His circumstances haven't changed. He's still in a dark place. But Jonah finds the grace of God in the belly of the whale. He remembers the steadfast love of the Lord. And God... Because Jonah is already saved. Jonah has already gotten grace. Jonah has already got it, right? Prayer did what it was supposed to do. Jonah had this internal change. So God speaks to the whale and the whale spits Jonah out on dry land. And this is funny. This is real funny, actually. Can you just imagine? Whoo, tough situation, right? You've been your own personal hell. You needed grace. God answered. Oh, this is, I think, where many of us go, oh, thank God. I felt grace. Lord, I thank you. I feel so loved. And then God goes, yeah, yeah, about that one thing. Remember that one thing? The reason why you ran? That one thing I told you to do, you didn't want to do? Remember that one thing? Yeah, yeah, I'm not done with that yet. Uh, Go back to Nineveh and tell them. Go tell them to repent. I I want us to hear this. Like, you're not getting around. Whatever he's pressing you on, whether it's missional community, whether it's forgiving your spouse, whether it's giving financially, you're not getting around it. He's not changing his mind, right? Now, I, I get you, you ran from God because you didn't want to do it, and God brought you back, and you're back. Praise God, you're back. But we're, we got to deal with this issue still. Go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. And we know prayer had the real effective change. See, you don't go to prayer to change God. That ain't happening. You go to prayer so God changes you so that you can see things clearly like Jonah. So God says, go to Nineveh. And it says, Jonah obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh. And I can't wait. Next week's going to be great. What happens, right? It's going to be great. Now, where are you at? 
with God right now? Honestly, where are you at with God? Are you suffering? Do you need grace? Are you running from him? Are you trying to plug your ears and disobey what he's telling you to do? And there's this real sense. I, I mean, as a, as a shepherd, I want to call you back and say, you're running from grace. You're running from the goodness of the Lord. You're running from grace. Come back. But there's, other, there's another side of me that just goes, good luck with that. It's not going to go well for you. Now, secondly, I want to say this. Christians, is this what our prayers look like? I know we've all been taught to pray. By, I don't know what we've been taught by. We've been passed down like these religious do-gooder prayers. I, I want to encourage us to go back to the Psalms. Go back to the Psalms and let God, through his word, ch- shape our, our prayer life to this honest, real style of prayer. That we're not afraid to admit our shortcomings. We're not afraid to admit that we're idolaters because idolaters who confess their sins get a lot of grace from Jesus. Is this what your prayer life looks like? Are you pulling up the gracious promises of God through faith like Jonah and experiencing a deeper communion and a deeper relationship with God through his grace? I I think that's what prayer is meant to be. be. I think this can happen to us. Now, every day is not going to feel like I'm pulling up gracious promises. feel so good about this prayer time, but it's going to happen sometimes. Listen to this quote. If you're not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy. But if like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will always find the time to pray. It's from Paul Miller again. In a praying life. <clears throat> I pray this morning, if you're new here, if you've never heard the gospel, that you hear it very clear this morning that it's not religion. It's not be a better person and God will love you. The gospel is Jesus was perfect for you. Jesus died with all your sins on him for you. And if you embrace him by faith, if you believe that everything he deserved, all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, the love of the father is credited to you on your behalf. And Christian, or maybe person who's wandered back into religion, I pray that that your prayer life would go to a deeper level like Jonah's. And I pray that it would begin to look a little bit like Jonah and like Jonah, we could get the grace of God. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the story of a dude swallowed by a fish. That's so hard to believe. It's so funny almost. But it's so real, so true. That there's going to be moments in our life that we feel this dark, We feel like we're under this kind of pressure. We're in deep like this. And there's nothing that can pull us from the deep but your grace. And every other 
attempt we make, every other idol we go to to try to save us and rescue us. This is just another way to forsake your love and to forfeit your grace. Jesus, I thank you that you are our substitute. You are our temple. You are our righteousness. You are the one that's in heaven right now, standing at the right hand of God, pleading for us, praying for us. I pray as we come to the table this morning, we break the bread and as we partake of the wine, we would be reminded of your substitute. We'd be reminded that we have been made right with God by grace. You were broken, so we don't have to be. Your blood was shed, so ours doesn't have to. Jesus, would you communicate that to us? Would you make it not just intellectually true, intellectually real, but effectually in our hearts, in our emotions, in our souls? Would you speak this, the better word to us? Speak grace. And that you don't just, you don't just speak it. You put something in our hand tangible, your body and your blood. We look to you this morning. You are our hope. You are our promise. Jesus, you are the one that convinces us we've been forgiven and we can have an intimate encounter and relationship with God. Do that for us this morning, this sacrament. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.